0: You are listening to audio from Redeemer Church in Midland, Texas. Redeemer Church is a gospel-centered missional family. If you would like to get more information or donate to this ministry, please visit www.redeemermidland.org. You have a Bible, and I hope that you do. Let me invite you to turn to Romans chapter 15. Uh, To start this, I'm going to reach back uh, and borrow a metaphor that I used uh, a few months ago uh, at some point in Romans. I think it might have been uh, Romans chapter 8. But the metaphor, it was kind of the idea that if if God's word uh, is a a landscape, uh, then uh, a few of the books kind of stand as just gigantic mountain ranges um, that... Uh, head and shoulders above the others, maybe provides some just like pinnacle moments uh, in the story of redemption, uh, in the story of of humanity, the story of the Bible, uh, and Romans is definitely one of those. And if you think about Romans uh, as a as a mountain range, uh, a few chapters just like crescendo, or there's some chapters that build up to some main ideas, and then you have these kind of 14ers, this idea of like a 14,000-foot peak that are just so monumental, uh, they look down and kind of uh, give clarity on the rest of the Bible. Uh, I believe Romans 8 is one of those. It's one of the highest points in Scripture um, to understand some of what uh, is taking place. Uh, And the book of Romans itself, we've talked about this uh, mainly early on when we began unpacking uh, Romans verse by verse, uh, walking through the entire book, that this book is probably, if you're a non-Christian just looking at human history, this is the most significant letter that has ever been written. Uh, It has done more to change people individually, to change cultures, uh, to change the course of humanity. And so Romans being an unbelievable book that the Holy Spirit wrote through the Apostle Paul, uh, just massive, massive mountain range that's full of 14ers. Uh, And then Romans chapter 8, when it talks about there is therefore now no condemnation, for those who are in Christ. It's just this incredibly high point. And I want to use that. I want to reach back and grab that metaphor and pull it back up to Romans chapter 15. uh, Because I think in a a way, Paul's getting to the end of the greatest letter that's ever been written. Uh, He's getting towards the end and he's made a case and he's built upon his case, laid a foundation, uh, built upon that. Uh, He's somewhat climbing this mountain, so to speak. And when he gets to the end of Romans, it's almost like he gets to the very top, the very pinnacle of these truths that he has been sharing, and then he just sits down and he glances over the landscape, and he gives us a very broad understanding or a very broad picture of what God is doing, not just in individual people's lives, but what his plan is for all of creation and for all of people. Uh, A few weeks ago, I took um, uh, Kit... Teddy and Paisley uh, on a camping trip in New Mexico. Um, Paisley is my nine year old daughter, and Kit and Teddy are my one and a half year old pack goats. Uh, Eventually, when they're big enough, they'll have some pack saddles on them and they'll be able to pack some gear so they'll uh, help me take my kids uh, hunting, fishing, camping, whatnot. Uh, But now they just eat. They just eat everything. Uh, They eat every plant, every tree. Uh, They were nibbling on Paisley's backpack. They were trying to eat uh, the rain fly off of our. Our tent, uh, and a few weeks ago, uh, Paisley and I went, we took Kit and Teddy, uh, and we did about a six-mile hike up in the mountains in New Mexico, uh, and about three miles in, before we turned around, we got to this really high mountain, this pinnacle, is was almost 10,000 feet, we get to the top, and we sit down, and then the goats just start eating things as they do, uh, Paisley also started eating things, she pulled her granola bar out of her backpack and started eating, uh, and then we sat down, and the first thing she was like thinking, and I was thinking, you know, somewhat too, the, the nine-year-old boy, me was thinking, I wonder if we could see our house from here. But wouldn't that be cool? Wouldn't that be cool? You get up on top of this mountain, but it's so funny how like that's your natural reaction maybe, maybe not. You get to the top of a mountain, you're like, I, you know, this mountain was probably designed so that I could have a really cool view of my house. Uh, Turns out the mountains are fairly far from Midland. Not sure if you knew that. Uh, We could not see our house. Uh, But what we could see and what you, uh, probably a natural inclination, if you climb a tall mountain, and many of y'all have, and you get to the top, you sit down, what you tend to do is just be, be, be somewhat overwhelmed about the, the, the grandness, the, the vastness, the nature of things. You can see uh, for miles and miles, we could look uh, to the east and see the Great Plains. We could look to the west down on uh, white sands, look to the north, and there's more mountains. And you just kind of, for a moment, you, you soak in the bigness of things. So, it's kind of silly, right, uh, to get to the top of a mountain and just kind of think, okay, well, this, like, can I see my house from here? And so, Paul gets up to the top of what I'm going to call Mount Romans. Okay, give me a little bit of creative license to use that illustration. Uh, He's towards the end of Romans, and he gets to the top, and he's sitting down, and what he is not going to do is to zero in on personal application to the Bible, right? That's kind of, uh, many of us, that's our first. uh, our gut reaction when we come to the Bible, especially as Americans, because as Americans, uh, we have been trained to to think about ourselves, not necessarily in a bad way. We're just very individualistic. So we look at things through the lens of an individual or us, and many people will come to the Bible. Well, what is the Bible about? Is it about uh, a whole bunch of ways that uh, I can have my best life now, right? Uh, is the Is the story of the Bible about how God is going to serve me and meet my needs? And the answer is No, that's not the main point of the Bible. And to say it out loud sounds ridiculous, doesn't it? Oh, the Bible's about me. All of creation is about me. Uh, It sounds ridiculous if we say it out loud, but all of us probably at some point have been tempted to think that. To get to the top of Mount Romans and be like, where's my house? Is this whole thing about, you know, kind of uh, ways that God can bless me? Now, uh, I want to give just a small caveat. I believe the Bible is a wildly practical book. I believe if you believe the Bible, obey the Bible, follow the practical precepts of the Bible, it actually will make your life better in just about every category. In relationships, with, uh, with friendships, with marriage, with kids, with parents, it's very practical. Uh, finances to help you know how to spend money, how to be wise, how to save, how to give, how to be generous, uh, wildly practical. So I believe all those things. I believe it will make your soul healthier. It will help you deal with stress, help you deal with anxiety, truly learn uh, how to live where peace and hope reign in your heart. I believe all those things. But when you get to the top of Mount Romans and you look out, the point of the Bible is not the very specific individualistic things for each one of us. So Paul does not go there, although All those things are true, and I hope that if you've spent any time at Redeemer that you have picked up on the fact that we believe the Bible is practical. It changes the way that you live your life on Monday morning. But from the top of Mount Romans, Paul is going to look down, and he's not going to make a whole bunch of notes about very uh, individualistic things. He's not going to uh, say, I see my house or your house from there. Uh, What he is going to do is he is, as he's finishing up, his book, getting to the climax uh, of Romans, getting uh, to the to the summit, if you will, uh, he is going to uh, sit down and take a glance across the entire spectrum of human history. What is taking place? And so, this is the really the question that I want to answer as we walk through the second half of Romans fifteen. What is the main point? What is God's main goal for? Creation for humanity. How? What's the main thread that uh, can fa- be followed from beginning to end? And this uh, section, verses eight through twenty-one, uh, Paul's going to break that idea up really into two different sections. The first one is very theological. Just theologically, what is the main goal that God's trying to accomplish throughout humanity? Um, the second one is very, very personal to Paul. In light of God's plan for. All creation beginning to end, theological, in light of that, how did that actually personally affect Paul's life? So, Paul's theological perspective from the top of Mount Romans, if you're ready, say, Ready? Romans chapter 15, verses 8. Uh, we're going to go for the first part through 13. This is Paul's theological treatise on the purpose of everything. He says, This, for I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised, which in, uh, especially in New Testament language, uh, it's a word that means to, to the Jewish people, to the nation of Israel, uh, to the people who had been specifically chosen and called out by God uh, to play a unique role in redemptive history. It reaches all the way back to the Old Testament. I tell you that Christ came as a servant to the circumcised, so he was coming to, to, to serve the Jewish people in a special way. He says, to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs. So he looks all the way back to the patriarchs from his view up on the top of Mount Romans. The patriarchs are the, the fathers of the faith from the Old Testament, beginning with Abraham, working through Isaac and Jacob, going through uh, to Jesse, to David, to Solomon, uh, includes Moses, includes like these whole line of fathers of the faith, in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. Okay? Hang with me. I've got a timeline I created again. I want to show you just how Paul's view of all of eternity fits into this. So he reaches all the way back and he says, okay, Jesus was going to come do something special through the Jewish people, but it's going to include all peoples, even, even the Gentiles. So that they might glorify God as it is written. And then he begins to quote uh, the prophets that would have come after the patriarchs. And he quotes uh, Psalm first. He says, As it is written. And then this is Psalm 18. Therefore, I will praise you among the Gentiles. That's all the pagan nations on the earth at that time that were not Jewish by, by descent or Israeli by nationality. And they will sing to your name. And again, it's said. And then he quotes Moses from Deuteronomy 32. He says, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, and then he quotes Psalm 117, Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. And again, Isaiah says, and then he quotes Isaiah chapter 11, he says, The root of Jesse. Uh, Jesse was one of the, the fathers in the faith that would um, give birth to King David that we know of. Or, or not him, but obviously his, his uh, lineage. The root of Jesse or something will come out from Jesse uh, will come, and even he who arises to rule the Gentiles. So he's saying like a Jew is going to come, and that Jew is going to rule everyone, all peoples. In him will the Gentiles hope, and may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. That verse uh, stuck out to me over the course of this week a little bit more as the days uh, progressed because as for many of you, it's a very difficult week. A lot of uh, things going on in our world, in our state, in our nation, a lot of chaos, a lot of evil, a lot of hurt, a lot of suffering, a lot of pain. And if you try to imagine, let me borrow the metaphor again, try to imagine Paul from the top of Mount Romans with everything that he knows, he's looking down, and and the church that he's writing to in Rome, they had their fair share of suffering and chaos and death and evil, and he, and he knew all that. He knew what was taking place. He knew how, how difficult it was to be a Christian in Rome, and yet from his view on the top of this mountain, that doesn't. that's not where he zeroes in. Where he zeroes in is that in the midst of all this chaos and suffering and evil and death, God's plan is actually progressing exactly how he said that it would. And so he comes down, and this is this verse, the last few days, ha- has has has, be, has had more clarity for me and has produced more hope in me that Paul, if he's sitting on top of Mount Romans and he's writing to us, he's like, Listen, I know things are crazy, I know things are chaotic, I know maybe you're suffering and maybe there's evil around you, but if you will look at the entire landscape from beginning to end. God is still in control. He's still doing exactly what he promised. And so what does that produce? May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing. So Paul was well aware of the difficulties and the pain and the suffering, but he was perhaps more aware of God's faithfulness to do exactly what he has promised he is going to do. And so when those two things meet, it produces for the Christian that can zoom back and see not just what happens uh, today for us, but what God has been accomplishing for hundreds of years. It should produce a hope and a peace that allows us to be faithful during some very difficult times. Now, I want to uh, read a quote from one of my favorite theologians. Uh, His name is uh, Andrew Giese, and uh, he is a young, faithful man here at Redeemer, and I have had many, many conversations with him. He's a very uh, well-read theologian. He's a great thinker, and he's running sound today. Um, So if you notice when I begin to quote him that he just kind of raises the volume a little bit, uh, you'll understand a little bit about what's going on. But uh, we had a conversation last week uh, after Sunday was walking out after uh, helping with Teardown, and he was just saying, like, uh, Romans 15 is one of his favorite chapters, in the Bible. And so I said, well, I would just, I would love it if you would write a couple words about kind of why that is the case and send them to me. So let me quote the one and the only Andrew Giese. Andrew, turn yourself up. Here we go. Uh, This is what Andrew says about Romans 15. Throughout Romans, uh, Paul has quoted the Old Testament to show that Jesus was not simply a man that fits in with history, but rather that all of history points to Jesus. Paul continues this theme with quotes from King David that we just read, Moses, Isaiah, and he crescendos to this final quote from Isaiah. Jesus' resurrection then from the dead proved that he is the one Isaiah prophesied to rise from the line of David and to rule. Paul is writing this to the church in Rome, the strongest political power at the time, that Jesus is the king of the world not Caesar. So like from the top of Mount Romans and just from from Christian history in general, you look at it like it's not just that Jesus happened to to fit the bill for a handful of prophecies and do a few things. It's like, no, absolutely everything in all of creation is going exactly according to plan for how God designed it to go. You can't thwart the plans of God. That's what gives Paul hope and peace towards the end of this letter. When he gets to the top, he's not zeroing in on his house, so to speak. He's zooming out to see God is, he is incredible, what he is accomplishing that has been shown throughout all of the ages, it's unbelievable and it gives me hope to navigate even some very, very difficult times. And then he changes gears. So that's like the, the, the 8 through 13 is a theological treatise for what God is doing on the planet, that he's doing something that will involve all peoples. Everybody say all peoples. That is going to be a major theme in the next few minutes that we have, that God is doing something that started very small, but it is going to take over the planet. And Paul saw it moving forward, and he was uh, overwhelmed. And then he shifts from that theologically uh, to uh, a little more personal. So here's a little bit of the personal testimony for how that reality that God wants his name to be known among all peoples and all nations for how that changed Paul's life. Verse 14. Personal truth, how that truth changed the focus and the trajectory of Paul's life. For I myself, Paul says, I'm satisfied about you, my brothers. And uh, for, for those of us in the room that are Gentile, which is most of us, um, there's really nothing crazy that we just read uh, that doesn't jump out at the page and grab you by the shirt collar and, like, shake you. But if you're a, if you're a Jewish reader, especially in the first century, uh, you were just, like, stunned. You can't make it any further because Paul was a very, very Jewish people, and he just called some Gentiles brothers, <laughs> It's just like there's no way for us to understand the gravity of what just took place. And really, the fact that Paul was able to say that was a fulfillment of all these prophets that he had just read. The the gospel is making them into one family. And now Paul's like, I'm so excited. I'm so I'm so satisfied because you, you, you non-Jews, you Gentiles, you brothers were in the same family now, which would have been unheard of. That was that's miracle enough. I'm satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves, you're full of goodness. Uh, how many of y'all would love if Paul wrote you a letter and he says, I'm just so satisfied with you, you're filled with goodness. Raise your hand. Okay, that's enough. We'll keep moving. Um, you're filled with goodness. Oh, wow, that's awesome. Um You're filled with all knowledge. Oh, I would love for Paul to write a letter to me. And he says, just you're a good dude. I'm so satisfied. You're filled with goodness. You're filled with knowledge. You're able to instruct one another. He's saying like if something happens to Paul, you got enough in you that you can keep going and you can help and serve and instruct one another along the way. Verse 15, he says, but then on some points, I have written to you very boldly by way of reminder. Okay, so they were filled with goodness. They were filled with knowledge. They were able to instruct one another. Does that mean that they still did not need some uh, encouragement and instruction? No, Paul's like, like, you're making some progress. You've got some incredible things going on. And also, he says, on some points, I have written to you very boldly. And if you go back, you see some of the things that Paul wrote would kind of, if they were written to you, make you cringe, right? Because the, he, he ran the risk of being very offensive. In fact, he, he ran the risk of being so truth-filled that he offended the hearers that they would not listen to him anymore. But because he was a true preacher, a true prophet driven by love, he says that he was willing to do that. On some points, I've written to you very boldly by way of reminder, because of the grace given me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles. In the priestly service of the gospel of God, so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. I pray that, uh, that, that I and all the other uh, preachers that have preached through Romans uh, have done the same thing. I really do pray that at some point you were deeply, deeply challenged and at the risk of being offended, um, you heard some truth through Romans. I mean, like, As I reflect on this last um, 12 months or so preaching through Romans, I hope that, um, that we can say that we've written very boldly. We've spoken very boldly by way of reminder. And just as a side note, uh, a preacher that's not willing to say something difficult or potentially offend you is just not worth much, right? Somebody that's only willing to tell you things things that are easy and things that are nice, uh, that's just not worth much. And that's not really a New Testament gospel preacher. OK, so uh, and I, you know, this week in and week out, I'm preaching to myself as much as I'm preaching um, to any of y'all. But that's what Paul's saying. He's like, I- I'm so proud. This is actually we're seeing the fulfillment of God's grand plan take place because there's a whole bunch of Gentiles now that are growing and they're worshiping God. and We're in the same family for 17. He says, in Christ Jesus, then I have reason to be proud of my work for God. For I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed. That was Paul's very specific life mission. He had read the Bible, all the prophets. They said God cares about the Gentiles, and specifically the Holy Spirit said that Paul was going to be the apostle to the Gentiles. So this is the practical side, the personal side of Paul responding to the mission of God in the world. Verse 19, by the power, this is how his ministry works, not just through the Romans, but through all of the Gentile nations. By the powers of signs and wonders, and by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem, the epicenter of Christianity, where it began with the Jewish people, all the way around to Illyricum, where he had had preached, it was a Gentile place. I, Paul says, I fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ, and thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel Not where Christ has already been named in Jerusalem, specifically with the Jews, lest I build on someone else's foundation, but as it is written in it. And then he quotes Isaiah chapter 52, those which would have been Isaiah 700 years B.C., looking forward to God accomplishing something with non-Jewish people. Paul had read Isaiah 52, and now he was the one that God was using to fulfill it. Isaiah said 700 years before Paul, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. So, what is God's mission? In the world, if we're going to sit on top for a moment, we've climbed all the way for 12 months. We got to the top of the mountain. We're going to sit down. We're not going to look for our house. We're going to see the entire landscape of what God is doing in His main mission on the planet. And we've created a timeline uh, for you. And I want to walk through this for a few moments um, so that you uh, just kind of enjoy the view from the top. Okay. Uh, so, uh, point number one, we begin like the the very beginning of the story begins in the garden uh, with uh, Genesis 1, Genesis 2, Genesis 3. Uh, y'all know the story, so I'm not going to belabor it. But uh, what happened in the garden, the beginning of the timeline of creation, the timeline of humanity, uh, the timeline of the earth. In Genesis 3.15, if we're on the top of the mountain and we're looking all the way back to the beginning, we call it the Genesis 3.15. We call it the proto-evangelion or the first time that the shade of the gospel shows up. Basically, what you see is that sin had broken everything, and God made a promise, uh, basically, that uh, the, the offspring of Eve, and the word he uses for offspring is a singular masculine. He's not talking about a family tree. He's talking about one male, one person that will come from Eve that will basically crush the enemy forever. Okay? That's what you see in the beginning. And then the question is, like, well, how far will that Will that reach? Will that reach to just her family? Will that reach to all peoples? And the next thing on the timeline that Paul sees from his vantage point on Mount Romans is the patriarchs. He mentions the patriarchs in the beginning of the text. God had promised very specifically to a lot of the patriarchs that his plan was going to be much bigger than just Abram and his family. Let me read a few of these to you. Genesis chapter 12, God is speaking to the first Patriarch. This was the first promise given to the first patriarch. His name was Abram. God would change his name to be Abraham and would create the Israeli nation, the Jewish nation from him. Now the Lord said, this is Genesis 12, 1 through 3. Uh, now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I'll make you a great nation. Speaking to one man, he says, I'm going to turn you into a huge nation. And I will bless you. And I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families, and that word families uh, really means uh, uh, tribe or clan, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And then Genesis 22, a few chapters later, God tells Abraham again, he makes a promise that Paul's referring to. He says, in your offspring, one single man that will come, shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. One lone man standing in the middle of an Arab desert, God says, I am going to do something through you. There's going to be a man that comes from your line that will bless every little tribe, clan, nation on the planet that's the timeline progressing, and then uh, oftentimes at Christmas, um, so we have Christmas uh, for our family, and we'll get uh, presents for the kids, and sometimes we get one present for all the kids, uh, it's something that the, they get to share, uh, but uh, if you're a parent, sometimes you know that you kind of have to choose somebody to open that, uh, and that is just not a fun thing, because something that's supposed to be awesome just can very quickly uh, turn into a fight, uh, but we did this uh, last year, uh, we wanted everybody to get the gift, but we chose one person, so we had to set this up with some clarity, like, okay, this is for everyone, okay, you are the one who is given the opportunity to open the present, but once you open it, I want you to know you're supposed to share it with everyone, and once they agree to the terms, then we, uh, one, two, three, ready, go, Uh, and the one that opens the present has the fun, opens the present, and then they all share it together, as you watch the, the, the narrative of, of redemption through this timeline, you see that basically God's plan was for his glory to be made known very specifically through Christ to everyone. He just chose the Jewish nation to be the ones that opened the package. So the Jewish nation have a very special place in history. But once the gift of the Messiah comes through the Jews, he's like, share it with everyone. That's not a New Testament idea. That has been the plan all along. Since he promised Abraham, I'm going to make you a great nation. And through you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Um, A a thousand years ago, David wrote this in Psalm 67 as one of the, the patriarchs, as a Jew that was speaking. He says, may God be gracious to us. And he's talking about his people, just his people, the Jews. He's like begging, God, will you please be gracious to your chosen people, the Jews? May God be gracious to us and bless us and his make, make his face to shine upon us that your way may be known on earth and your saving power among all nations. Even David understood the magnificence of the plan. We get to open the package. We want you to bless us so that all the nations of the earth can know. Let the peoples praise you, he says, O God. Let all the nations praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. From Paul's view on top of Mount Romans, the garden was a shadow of a promise for all people. The patriarchs, he says, God promised all of them. That this is so much bigger than anyone could have imagined. Then you keep going down the timeline. Uh, Then you get to the prophets. And uh, uh, Paul has quoted a handful of them. He's quoted Isaiah. He's quoted uh, Deuteronomy. He's quoted Psalms. And there's more. If you go through the prophets... They are littered with the reality that God is doing something that is much bigger than just the Jewish people. Uh, Here's just a few that I wanted to quote from you. What were the prophets expecting, and what did they believe was God's main plan for the world? Isaiah says in Isaiah 49, verse 6, He says, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob, which is a term to describe Jews. And to bring back the preserved of Israel. He's like, it's too small a thing for God just to be focused in on what's taking place with the Jews. He says, I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Micah, uh, another prophet, Micah 4.2 says this, many nations... Shall come and they will say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. So Micah says, Like, there's going to be a whole bunch of people groups and tribes that are not Jewish that show up, he says, to the God of Jacob, to a Jewish God. There's going to be some pagan nations that show up to the the Jewish God, and then he says that that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. If you're looking down at the timeline, the garden talks about all peoples. The patriarchs, they knew it was for all people. The prophets knew it was uh, for all people. What about Jesus? What did Jesus think was the big plan for the timeline? What did Jesus hope to accomplish? Matthew 24. Please listen to these next two verses very clearly. Jesus says this, and this gospel of the kingdom, meaning the good news about what God is doing through Christ, salvation by grace through faith so that we can glorify God forever. Jesus had explained the gospel and now he's saying that the gospel of the kingdom, like he, he says will be proclaimed throughout the whole world. And I've I've tried so hard over the years to get my imagination going and to wonder what it would have been like for some 30-year-old, uneducated by, you know, some some high standards of education that they had, uh, never traveled very far from home, single man homeless, and he had 12 ragtag buddies, and they were on a camping trip up in the northern edge, and nobody else knew what was going on. And this, just like, against all odds, this guy's like, you know what? Uh, I'm doing something that is going to just absolutely take over the globe. The the news of the gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. I think Paul sat on the top of Mount Romans and thought, "He's, he's doing it. Against all odds, Jesus is doing it. They've got people in Rome that are worshiping Jesus. And then Jesus says, and you know this by heart, the Great Commission, uh, probably the last thing that Jesus said before he ascended into heaven, after he died, after he rose, and it's not just go and tell people about him. He very specifically uh, orchestrated and designed the Great Commission to say this, and Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, so go therefore and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe everything I've commanded you, and I'll be with you always to the end of the age. What did Jesus see? What did he think? He believed that the message of the gospel was for all nations. Now, uh, when we hear the word nations, and we've talked about this often, uh, we think about countries. Uh, we think about countries on a map. That's not what the word means. Um, the word is is much smaller than that. It's uh, either ethnos or ethne uh, in uh, the original language, which uh, means like ethnic group, a people group, a, a tribe, a, 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 a clan, somebody that has a, a very small group of people that have a distinct culture and a distinct language. And if you look at like, if we were to define this um, by our standards of countries, we would say that, well, Jesus is, he's kind of done. He's kind of finished because there's somebody that worships Jesus from every country, but there's not someone from every nation. And yet in the garden, you see this with the patriarchs, you see this with the prophets. And even Jesus says that he will get The gospel out to every small distinct people group. Fast forward on the timeline, I want to uh, read just a little bit from Revelation. And if you are uh, new to the Bible, Revelation is futuristic. Uh, It's telling us something that will happen, but it has not happened yet. Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 through 10, says this. And this, after this, the Apostle John says, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number. That's a lot. I was trying to think of a good picture, and I remember looking at some pictures years ago from Woodstock. Do you remember? Have you ever seen pictures? like so? There's like a stage, and there's just seas and seas of people. <laughs> Disappointing Jesus, right? Uh, It just masses amounts of people. It's like, okay, there's a stage and there's just, like, you couldn't even count it. And I just kind of take that and multiply that by about 100. That's kind of the image that that, that John had. Like, there's a throne. There's one guy sitting on the throne. And then just sees and sees and sees and sees of people. And, And this is physically going to happen. This is not like something that has, this this will happen, God will accomplish. And he says, and I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, Every single nation, all tribes, all peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes representing they had been forgiven and cleansed by Jesus once and for all, with palm branches in their hands and they're crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Could you imagine that picture? I mean, every hair texture that you could imagine, every uh, skin tone that you could imagine, every eye shape that you could imagine, At some point, and we don't know when this will be, could be two years from now, could be a thousand years from now, there will come a day when Jesus is worshiped and there is a representation from every small little people group on the planet. And if you don't like diversity, you're not going to like heaven. (laughs) It's going to be the most diverse thing that the globe has ever seen. Okay, that, that's, that's kind of the timeline. Now, I want to drop into you where, where Paul is. Okay, Paul lands right here between Jesus and Revelation. So, all these promises have already been made uh, and obviously has not been fulfilled. But this is why Paul is saying, like, I'm so excited you're my brothers. I went from Jerusalem all the way to Elycrium and, and, and the gospel. Like, it's happening. We're not done, but it has now spilled out over Jerusalem into all these other people groups. Gentiles are worshiping you. That was uh, that was Paul. This is verse 19. He was saying from Jerusalem all the way to Illyricum. He's saying we, we haven't gotten to all the nations yet, but we've gotten to some. He says, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. The ministry of the gospel on this timeline is not just simply that Paul would say true things, would, would, would explain the truth. It, that It's that he would explain the truth beyond the walls of Jerusalem, that it's specifically not just to tell the truth, but to tell the truth to Gentiles and to all nations. Verse 21, he says, but as it is written, and then again, he quoted Isaiah 52, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. It's, it was taking place Poor Paul that was him on the timeline now I want to drop one last thing on this timeline so if you look back at the garden and you look back at the patriarchs that this promise is not new this has been God's goal for humanity all along we know Paul made some incredible progress we know that someday it will be finished the last one I drop in is us it's you and so you are here we, we, we understand the, the, the patriarchs and the promise that God gave them. We understand all the prophecies that uh, people from every tribe, every nation, every language will worship Jesus. We understand very clearly what Jesus said that the gospel is going to get out to all nations and then the end will come. And that's the commission that we have been given. Go and make disciples of what? All nations. And we know that a day is going to come when the, the mission is over, everything's finished. We gather together to worship with brothers and sisters from across the globe. On the timeline, I think it's easy probably for uh, especially Americans to to understand how God is changing people's lives, how he is rescuing people, how he is saving lost people from across the street. But we need to be very well aware that that's not just like the, the, the plan of God is not just for lost people. It's for all the nations. And from that single poor man uh, up with his buddies having a camping trip when Jesus said that he will get the message of the gospel to all nations, it's, you, you can't express how much of an underdog statement that would have been. And yet he's accomplishing it. He moved from being the savior of the Jews. There's, uh, Depending on how you define it, there's roughly 11,000 ethnos or people groups as the word nations truly means on the planet, and depending on how you define it whether like a Christian missiologist or secular sociologist would agree like there's at least eleven thousand people groups and somewhere in the neighborhood of six to seven thousand of those nations have churches that are meeting today that are worshiping Jesus as Lord and Savior and Paul's on the top of Mount like God is doing it. He's doing exactly what he said he would do. He's not going to finish. And right in the middle, we have a commission, not just to try to reach lost people, but to be engaged with God's ultimate plan to get the gospel of Christ to all nations. So how do we do that? I'm not going to spend a lot of time this morning on the practicality that's coming. Uh, I mean, you've heard this is, this is nothing new to you if you've been around Redeemer, that we care not just about lost people but about uh, people groups that have never heard about Jesus. They don't have uh, any part of the Bible translated into their language. What can we do? Number one, you can obviously pray. Uh, two resources that I would encourage you towards when you find yourself maybe for the first time seeing you're here. and We have a very specific job to do, um, so we have some very specific prayers to make. Two resources. One is Operation World, uh, and two is the Joshua Project uh, that very clearly give you details about who are these few thousand ethnoses that have not heard the gospel that are going to. It's just a matter of time and that we can very specifically pray. I would encourage you to go find those resources, Operation World, Joshua Project, and very specifically pray uh, for those nations to hear about Jesus. Uh, number two, obviously you can give. And uh, you probably know this if you've been around Redeemer. Uh, when you give, and I pray that you give. This is such a very um, foundational thing to being a Christian that the God has called us to give uh, a portion of our uh, money every week, every month. Every time God blesses us, we turn around and we give a portion of that back. We call that tithing, giving 10% of what God blesses with us for the work of the nations and you know that a big portion of what you give for us goes not just specifically to missions but to missions among the nations, among people groups that have never heard the gospel, three in particular Uh, and the leaders for these have all been here, you've heard from them, um, India, Moldova and Burma. These are all missionaries that are serving very specifically with unreached people groups that fit right in the plan. These are three of the few thousand that still need to here about Jesus. When you give, I want to encourage you that a big portion of that goes to help uh, fund and support the nations. Uh, number three, obviously you can go. You can go. You can go short-term. You can go long-term. You, I, I think it's worth it. Does every Christian to be faithful to Jesus need to quit their job and to move to Africa? No, they don't. A lot of those Christians in Antioch, they sent uh, Paul, they sent Barnabas, but a lot of them stayed, and Paul urged a lot of them to stay. So you don't have to go to be faithful, but I think it's worth it for every Christian to truly ask God if he wants them to go. And then if God stirs you up to send you, whether that's short term or long term, go and we would be happy to help send you. And then this is actually where I want to end up and, and tie, uh, t- tie this up for this morning. It's not necessarily an action because a lot of times when you preach about uh, God's plan for the nations, the, the call is to, to pray, to give, to go. And I, I, again, I saw this for the first time this week because there's probably so much chaos going on around the Christians in Rome. There's probably people being murdered. There were definitely Christians being uh, persecuted. There was suffering. There was disease. And for for many of us, it's been a very crazy week, months, probably a few years of a lot of that. And so I want to uh, let um, David, King David, have the final word. And this is what I feel like was part of Paul's response as he's writing Romans 15, sitting on the top of Mount Romans, and I'll encourage you to think about this as well. Psalm 4610 says this, and many of you are probably well well familiar with the first part. Be still and know that I am God, and I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. A lot of chaos, a lot of things going on in our world. But when you zoom out all the way back to the garden, to the patriarchs, to the prophets, to Jesus, and you look at Revelation, that there should be a, a way in which we're able to see that and be still. Like, you know what? God is doing exactly what he promised to do. The chaos hasn't caught him off guard. In fact, Jesus said, it's going to get worse, it's not going to get better. Evil's going to get worse, death is like everything, all the bad things, they're going to get worse, and yet Jesus is marching forward, and he's going to accomplish what he said he is going to do, and there should be a piece of that that allows you to just simply be still. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. So when Paige and I got up to the top of that mountain, we looked, we just there wasn't anything to do, there was just something to 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 soak in. So we we've got some things to do as a church, obviously, but I want you to soak in for a moment. The and and stand in awe of what God is accomplishing church is marching forward people are meeting jesus unreached people groups are hearing the gospel and he won't be done until he has reached every tribe every people every nation every language every tongue so pray go give and be still trust and trust to know that god's still in control let's pray together this morning father we love you and i pray that you would help us to be still and to know that you are god to know that nothing is happening that's outside of your your sovereignty and your power, and you are accomplishing against all odds everything that you said you would do. Father, I pray that you would help us as believers and help us as a church to know where we fit into your plan and to be faithful to take the gospel to the nations. We love you, we praise you, we thank you, and I pray this all in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to this message from Redeemer Church. If you want to connect with us at Redeemer, we would love for you to visit us at a service in person or visit us online at www.redeemermidland.org.